For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. So welcome everyone. It's my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker today, Vyakarang Judith Vigir, old friend who uh, was the teacher at Clouds and Water Zen Center up in St. Paul and Katagiri country for many years. Vyakarang um, uh, is going to be talking today about her recent book, Untangling Karma, um, Subtitle is thank you. Uh, intimate Zen stories of healing trauma. You don't need that. So, uh, Yakaran and I were guest teachers some years ago, 2018, 2019, way back before the pandemic days, uh, at uh, Sanchin's and uh, community with Shohak Gorkamora. And I, I don't know if you'd started, uh, Writing this at that time, but you were talking about this this uh, great untangling. So uh, I really appreciate hearing about it today. And uh, there will be after after service and uh, temple cleaning uh, during tea and treats upstairs. There will be opportunities to purchase the book and to have the upright sign. So thank you very much for coming to Chicago. Yeah. So nice um, I'll just say, Tyga and I go way back. We've supported each other in many, many ways, different ways over the years. Um, and that was kind of, uh, can you imagine I got to talk about Dogen with Tygen and Shohaku? <laughs> you know, it was like, uh, kind of was the peak of my uh, teaching life. I know that I was invited because I was a girl, <laughs> but uh, anyway, it was still totally fantastic for me. Um, I've studied Dogen quite a lot. I, uh, Katagiri Roshi, my root teacher, was a Dogenite, talked a lot about Dogen. Of course, at that time, I didn't understand what he was talking about, and also the way he talked, it was very hard to at, but I think it got seeped into my bones, you know, years of listening to him. And then a Shohaku, oh my Lord, he is just so fantastic at untang- untangling, at deciphering, at telling you the backstories so that you understand the fascicles. Um, so I got to study with him too. So I started out with Dogen. So oddly, oddly, my study of Dogen has left me where I am right now, which is I'm not teaching anymore uh, in the usual way in a sangha. I'm not wearing my robes so much unless I'm involved in a a high Zen ceremony. 
Um, and I just spent the last six years investigating karma, which I think Dogen encourages us to do. However, when most people think about Dogen, they think about him only what I would call the high-end Zen, mm. the uh, upper levels of consciousness. Um, but that's not what I got from him. Also, he has a fantastic sense of humor and such an artist. Uh, and he really uh, gave me freedom from my concepts, concepts about my life, concepts about Zen, concepts instead of uh, being available for my life. I had been living in trying to get these concepts to manifest in my life. And through Dogen, that was really changed around. Uh, And his understanding of time really liberated me. So, So now I've just spent six years studying karma and... What is karma? It is really um, understanding how time does manifest in our life, uh, but also how to hold our life in the compassionate arms of timelessness or nonlinear time. So somehow I'm at the moment, my practice is to try and be really real about the causes and conditions of my personal suffering to investigate them so that I can be free of of them, understand them so that they don't dominate my being and to hold them in what I got from Zen. I mean, Zen is the quintessential practice for understanding the non-conceptual higher levels of consciousness or being a human. So so that's what I'm trying to do today, is to hold who I am, the human part of me, with the great expanse of the Buddha part of me. And those two things together are very healing and really help you become free. Um, So I've given this talk 30 times since July, (laughs) but every time is new and free. And I try to fill the group. So I just kind of improvise. So let's hope I do okay today. Let's start with Titnat Han Daiosho. Um, the fruit of looking deeply, the fruit, not the root or the cause, but the fruit of looking deeply is understanding the many causes and conditions, primary and secondary, that have brought about our anger. We reflect like this until we have some insights 
into what has caused our suffering. With insight, we know what to do and what not to do to change the situation. Wow, I haven't read that in a long time. That's a beautiful quote. Mm -hmm. And it's very much what I'm interested in. Okay. I imagined when I was writing the book, well, I didn't know what I was doing. When I was writing the book, I was just, I had these stories that felt really profound to me about my Zen life, how I changed in my Zen life, what transformed around different stories in my life. And so I started writing them down, and it wasn't until three quarters of the way through that I got a sense of what I was writing about, that I got a sense of, oh, I'm trying to express for other people how I untangled these deep stories in my life that create suffering for me and anxiety. And then, you know, the publishing industry, as some of you know, well, they really wanted me to have trauma in the title because that's what's selling now. (laughs) And indeed, this book is about trauma. But it wasn't actually written with that in mind. It was written to help other people like me. I came into Zen when I was 20, well, really when I was 16, if you count the years that I just sat for 10 minutes and didn't know what I was doing and loved Buddhism and loved Japan. I did that from 16. But I really started practicing when I met Katakiri Roshi, which it was in 1976. And um, just, I'll get it. I'll get something and then we'll proceed. I, ah, that's where I was. Why I wrote the book. When I came into Buddhism, I was a total mess, emotional body mess. Poor Katagiri Roshi, he didn't know what the heck to do with me. I would go into the Doksan room and I would just cry. And he was very kind, Katagiri Roshi. He would give you as much time as you needed, which is very unusual. He wasn't really into Doksan. Because he didn't know what to tell you to do except practice, you know. And he was teaching practice in his lectures and so forth. But he did Dokusan. He would let you talk as long as you needed. And basically, I would cry for an hour. And then he would say, go back and sit in the Zendo. So, and I can say I am a person who has had quite a bit of trauma in her life. I was sexually abused as a child. I'm a Jew, which has ethnic trauma related to it. I was raped in Chicago, by the way, uh, when I was about 32. Um, I came from a pretty violent psychological household. So there were many reasons why I was an emotional mess. 
this is what I call causes and conditions. And I did work, thankfully, and I really am grateful. When I started in, when I was around 23, I, I got in with Katagiri Roshi, and I also started to do 12-step recovery. And I feel so fortunate that I had those two modalities to work together. And then I added psychotherapy. So I really have done, my spiritual life has been an interweaving of these different modalities. And I could not have done it without either of them, either of them, all of them. It was the intertwining of the depth that I got from Zen practice that you don't get in 12-step, if any of you are (gasps) 12-steppers. The depth of understanding the profoundness of Zen. Now, some people say, especially in Zen, that that profoundness alone will heal you, will liberate you, and you will have um, a transformative experience. And that is true. Ding-a-ling-a-ling. That is true. However, what I'm interested in is how does that integrate with how I'm behaving in the world? How does that understanding, this huge understanding I get from Sen, help me understand my choices that I'm making on a daily basis? And 12-step, especially steps five through nine, which are the putting to bed the wreckage of your past. I think that's how they call it. Um, That part, investigating my life, sharing it with people, uh, praying to be released of the karmic, uh, prison I was felt like I was in and learning how to make amends or address the problems that are in your life. I looked for a long time in Buddhism for addressing amends making, addressing the problems that were creating your suffering, changing it. And Uh, Interestingly, it was the Tibetans that gave me the most information about that. Uh, Pema Chodron writes a lot about changing your behavior patterns. Um, What's the other guy's name? I might have it written down because I can't remember anybody's name anymore. Uh, Ken McLeod, 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 I think it's called. He has wonderful teachings on how to use the divine abodes, how to interrupt your habit patterns. That teaching was so important to me. And I didn't quite find it, even though every morning we say, may I atone with it all. The actual teaching of how to do it in your life, I didn't find in Zen. So I would say that whatever freedom I have, I have done through this intertwining of different modalities. 
And I would like to suggest that if you're a person who has had a lot of trauma, I'm thinking that's the way to go. I, I wouldn't put all your eggs in the Zen basket if you've had a lot of trauma. Now, I thought that when I went around and said that statement, that I would get a lot of pushback from Zen communities. But you know what? I haven't. <laughs> I've gone around all summer and said that thinking, oh, I'll just tell you my prejudice, thinking that the men <laughs> in the group were going to stand up and tell me I was full of BS, you know, that I wasn't following the Dharma, that I wasn't teaching Zen. But that hasn't happened. I've been very well received by this message that there needs to be some adjustment in the way we're teaching Zen now that acknowledges um, the emotional aspect, the precepts. I don't think we work with the precepts enough, even though they're the center of all of our rituals. Did you know that? They're the center of Jukai. Well, they're not the center of Shuso ceremony, but they're the center of becoming a priest, and they're definitely the center of the transmission ceremonies. So they're highly uplifted, but we don't practice them enough in Zen. If I may, just to say that Ancient Dragon Zen Gate Tuesday evenings has an honest, now online meditation recovery group, which addresses uh, in a Buddhist way, 12 steps. And Ruben, who I think is here, is oh, yeah. Up, so. up there. Yeah. Yeah. So, excuse me. So, anyway, that's what this book is about. It's about the different stories that I have and how my Zen. Pra- I think if you read the book, from what I'm understanding from the feedback, is my Zen practice, you will feel it and see it throughout the book. But the actual stories are, um, you don't usually hear in a Dharma talk. So let me just say about the stories. Um, Usually Buddhism is about, Buddhism, not just Zen, Buddhism in a whole teaches to disidentify with our stories because our stories are not the whole of who we are. So I tried to do that a lot. But the but that I have is the way that I did it. And again, this is very personal and individual and depends on your psychological structure. I, in order for me to disidentify with my story, I, I had to do what Tagathan said. I had to look at the primary and secondary causes of my story. I had to become familiar with my anger, rage, defense mechanisms in order to unravel what I conceptually understood as myself. Mm. And when I was teaching, I 
often people would come into the Dokusan room and say, oh, this would be, I would call, intermediate kind of students that were doing a lot of session and they were just getting off of the honeymoon of, oh, I'm calm after I sit. They would come into the Dokusan room and they would be completely taken apart. You know, I didn't know what they were doing. They were just going over and over visuals from the past. Um, maybe if they're trauma survivors, they would be stuck in the trauma. And I would just say, this is a great place to be. Because in order to understand no centralized self or no self, which is one of the primary teachers of teaching in Buddhism, I believe and again, you don't have to agree with me, I believe that somehow we have to deconstruct the self that we created when we were children and teenagers and certain aspects of adult life that create a sense of self based on the values of the environment we were brought up in, the conditions of the world, you know, like what's going to happen to the kids because of the pandemic? There's some kind of structure that's going to happen of fear or defensiveness or isolation that will make something in their sense of self. And I feel like part of Zen is it allows us to go back and to loosen that up and deconstruct it. But we can't deconstruct it unless we know what it is. So part of this book happened because all of a sudden some of my students started to call me Roshi, <laughs> which is the title for a mature Zen teacher. And I would go and I was honored, like, oh wow, great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I got to it, the top of the line. Uh, this is a gesture from Katagiri Roshi. He would take suspenders and then he would go. <laughs> I got to the top. But I would go home and I would have so much anxiety still, like a bro roiling in my stomach often. Or I would be paranoid, afraid, or I would get off of a lecture and I would just be petrified that people disagreed with me or didn't like me or all this stuff. And I thought, this doesn't feel like a Roshi to me, <laughs> you know? And so I thought I have done all the work I could possibly think of about my personal karma. I had been to psychotherapy, I did 12-stop, I've, you know, I would, I'll just say, you don't know me, but I was a very good sense student. You don't even know that too much about me, but I did everything they said, I went to all the sessions, I sat very quietly, I did everything I was supposed to do, and I still had a lot of anxiety. And it dawned on me, I had an insight that this anxiety was not mine. Mm. This anxiety was from oppression. This was Jewish inherited anxiety. 
I know it is kind of funny, but it's also not funny. Um, I, I was born in uh, 1951, right after the war. My parents uh, were born in the tens, the 1910s. My grandparents came over when the Tsar was drafting Jews to go in the army. That was about 1910 to 1912. They lived through the Depression. They lived through World War II. And then I was born. Uh, And the Jewish community didn't know what to do with themselves in the 50s. I mean, they just couldn't face what had happened. They just didn't know what to do. It was all very hidden, secretive status and money became a way of anchoring them, or at least in my family of origin. So I thought to myself, in order to be released from this anxiety, I needed to study anti-Semitism because this was internalized anti-Semitism and what it causes. And one thing about the book is, The book is extremely raw, so I'm already, and forewarning you, um, I didn't hold anything back, especially there's a sex chapter that I lay it all out on the line. Um, And the Jewish part, oh, I thought for the whole of the book, the reason I wrote it in such a raw form was my idea as an artist, and I've always been an artist, my idea as an artist is that if you go as deep, as deep, as deep as you possibly can, A, you'll find Avalokitesvara at the bottom, you'll find Buddhist compassion at the bottom, but also it becomes a universal condition. It's so... By my going deeply into internalized anti-Semitism because of thousands of years of oppression of the Jews, I felt like that might help any of the people in the world that are dealing with oppression also. Like my African-American community that I'm involved in, and so many people, you know, even white Europeans have been oppressed, like I married an Irish person. So my poor kids have gotten the intergenerational trauma from the Jews and also from the Irish. But anyway, I believe that if we talk about it, if we investigate it, we can deconstruct it. We can liberate it. And that requires being willing to feel the pain of it. And certainly, Zazen teaches you how to stay with the pain of your life, with the pain of your body. And if you do that, you can watch it dissolve. So, um, at the same time I was doing this, Bernie Glassman was going to Auschwitz-Birkenau on these Buddhas for Peace. What is he? Peacemakers order. 
So I decided to go with Bernie. I went with him the second time I went to Auschwitz-Birkenau. It's mainly Birkenau. Uh, you go for a week. You sit, Zazen, on the tracks. Uh, they uh, During the whole time you're sitting, they read the names of the dead that they get from the... The Nazis kept incredible data. You know, they were very um, organized. Uh, and that was such an incredible experience for me. I just cried for four or five days. I just bawled the whole time. And then I got past my personal, and I was able to get some insight, which is in the book, larger than that. And the other opportunity I had about studying World War II was I went with the Great Val Monastery, Jesus for Peace Pilgrimage, it was called. And I went to Hiroshima and Nagasaki on the anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb. Right? I went to both places. In one place, I was the victim. And in the other place, I was the perpetrator. And that was one of the big teachings from Bernie Glassman, that victim and perpetrator are the opposite. So we're in a non-dual tradition. But what that means is we understand about the rotating or the uh, what the we can't get rid of the opposites in manifest reality, but they work with each other. So if you're a victim, you can become a perpetrator out of your rage, like the people from the concentration camps who went to Israel and became terrorists. That's one example. Um, And the other is I was a victim at Birkenau as a Jew, and I was a perpetrator in Japan as an American. So... I really felt there was a moment in Japan that I felt like my sense of identity was deconstructed. Maybe I should read that paragraph. As I said, I'm um, improvising here. All right. Uh, So I think I was standing in Hiroshima. Uh, one thing they asked me to do was they wanted me to look like a Zen priest the whole time I was in Japan. So I shaved my head the whole time I was there. I wear all my robes. And it was one of the strangest experiences because mostly people in Japan are dressed in Western clothes. And only the older people are dressed in traditional clothes. And here I was, a woman, an American, with a shaved head, dressed like a man, standing in Japan. So this is the paragraph. Standing and sweating in extremely hot weather in Hiroshima on August 9th, 2005, the day of the 60th anniversary of the United States nuclear bombing, I saw through to the bottom of any sense I had of a conditioned, solid, one-identity self in utter amazement. 
there were so many identities identities within me interchangeable. <coughs> there I was, dressed in traditional Japanese clothes as a Zen monk, with my head shaved. I was an American, Jewish, female, feminist, dressed in traditional Japanese clothes and bald. <laughs> Being bald was deeply emotionally emblematic for me. On the one hand, I felt like I was masquerading as a man, and layered on top of that, I felt like a Jewish woman entering a gas chamber, a breast cancer survivor, or a Zen priest letting go of her attachments. The complexity and superimposition of these images triggered my sense of the unraveling of my identity. Who was I? These multidimensional references left me totally baffled. I was standing on the spot where my country had committed the worst atrocities of war, nuclear, mass, and civic destruction. I was standing there for peace. However, in many people's eyes, I was still the enemy. So I just like to say a lot of my deepest insights into how to use Zen in my life came off the cushion, like this one. Now, it was dependent on my years of sitting on the cushion. But oddly, when I finally let go of my sense of self, it was not on the cushion, although I had experiences of it on the cushion. But this was so much more lasting that I was none of my identities. They were all conditioned realities for me. So since I'm talking about World War II, I'll read the two paragraphs that are about that. But I have to talk about this um, uh, dissolving of the story. Part of what I really, I feel so grateful. This book was... I don't know, you know, I still, I hope I still have 10 or 20 years to live. Although we never know, right? But this book felt like I put a period, this book and then talking about the book, felt like I put a period at the end of being at peace with my past. Of accepting my past. All of it. And I have felt such a sense of freedom, the kind of freedom I have been hoping for since this has come out and I've talked about it. And I just feel like I don't have to go back there anymore. These parts of who I was are okay. I don't want to say resolved, but there's some kind of deep acceptance I have now that has let me be much, much less free of my anxiety that I held. I even said to a friend, could Judith Regeer live without anxiety? <laughs> you know? And the answer is yes. If I allow myself to transform, evolve spiritually, but that doesn't mean I bypass the psychological issues 
that created my anxiety. And one of the things that I'm learning is as you digest your stories, uh, sometimes in Buddhism they call it grits for the milk. Have you heard that? Like rubbing, 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 rubbing. And that happens in Zazen quite a bit, would you say? That these just get rubbed out. And sometimes they get rubbed out in Zazen. But in my case, they mostly got released as I went through my stories and released the causes and conditions of what was holding inside of myself. So um, I would say, what is that, 85%? You're digesting, you're digesting, you're rubbing, you're investigating, you're going to therapy, you're doing all the things you were doing. And then you hit a point where grace, I'm just going to call it grace, where grace happens and you just let go and you forgive. Forgiving my dad You know, my dad had an immigrant personality. He was in a total rage for most of his life because of anti-Semitism, in my opinion. Um, He was a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I didn't like it. And it really affected me and my brothers. But, and here's the story of forgiving my dad, of course. This comes after... 85% of digesting the whole deal with him. But when I was in Hiroshima, I forgave my dad. And I'll just say uh, for fun that I've read this paragraph in every book event I've had. So I've read this paragraph publicly 30 times. And if I haven't forgiven my dad after that, (laughs) uh, I'm in trouble. Okay, here's the paragraph about forgiving my dad. Standing in the middle of the Birkenau concentration camp, I realized the causes and conditions that had made my father my so-called enemy. And he became a human being in my eyes. I saw beyond my limited and preconceived intellectual understanding of who my father was and the conditions that had shaped his psyche. My heart opened to the causes of my father's rage. It struck me like lightning in a moment of insight and release as I was moving in a long stream of retreat participants towards the front gates for a lunch of bread and soup. All of a sudden, with no warning or intention, I found myself dropping to my knees, my head bent over, and my hands on my heart. People were streaming past me on both sides as if I were a rock in a stream, the water rushing past. In this moment, out of time, huddled forward over my knees, I forgave my father and asked him to forgive me. Crying and howling with grief for my ancestors, for my parents, and for me, I saw the many repercussions 
of the violence and dehumanization that had happened in Birkenau and in my people's lives and their connection with my own life. So now I'd like to tell you the other side. That was the side of victimization, of me feeling like a victim. I think that's one good thing that might happen if you investigate your stories is I don't want to live my life as a victim anymore. I want to be more empowered than that. So I feel like that's what's happening to me. I know I'm old, you know, so my old age, I'm getting all the terrific benefits of um, all the terrific benefits of all the spiritual work I've done. But I'm still grateful that in my 70s, I'm getting these, this release. This is about um, the Japanese rage towards Americans. Um, so uh, this is at Hokyoji, which is Katagiri Roshi's monastery. At the time, I can't remember, I might have when it was, uh, 1985, the monastery was very, very primitive. We had no electricity. The, we, just, we had a gas stove, but you were uh, a lantern in the um, uh, kitchen. Uh, we all slept in tents. So it was very, very primitive. And Katagiri Roshi really wanted Narazaki Roshi. So Iko Narazaki Roshi was the supreme of the supreme uh, Japanese Roshis in Japan. And Katagiri Roshi really looked up to him and said, he's the real deal. And he wanted his students to see the real deal. Because Katagiri Roshi was very humble. He never thought he was the real deal. And I don't think I'm the real deal. So we're all, we're all not the real deal. Uh, and, and probably Narazaki Roshi didn't think he was the real deal either. But I'll just tell you one story about him. It was, when it rained there, it was very muddy. And he had on the Japanese shoes, wood shoes, but they have like heels, like they're this high, little platforms. And he, the uh, hojo, the teacher's quarters were up on the hill, and we were down here having breakfast or something. And I watched him walk down this muddy hill. He was all in his beautiful garments, you know. The higher you get up in Japanese hierarchy, the more beautiful and expensive your clothes are. I'll just say that as a aside, a blasphemous aside. But anyway, he was dressed beautifully. He was on these high-heeled platforms. And truly, he looked like he was walking on a cloud. Mm. It just took my breath away to see his mindfulness practice. Uh, so anyway, 
And in that moment, I got why uh, Katagiri Roshi really wanted us to see Narazaki Roshi's practice. But here is a story about Narazaki Roshi on the last day of the session. On the last lecture of the week, Narazaki Roshi, the distinguished Zen master from Japan, started to cry. And I think for a Japanese man to cry in public is quite exceptional. He said that he had not wanted to come to America, the land of the enemy. He said he had a lot of hatred in his heart for America and Americans after the catastrophe in Japan of World War II. He was just barely convinced to do it as a favor to Katagiri Roshi, but he had a lot of internal resistance. Now, he said, having sat Zen in the beauty of Hokyoji, in the Zendo, with all of us for a week, he had watched his hatred dissolve. Iko Narazaki Roshi watched his mind as it changed. He began to see our humanness and hear our heartfelt stories. He saw our practice as the same as his practice. As he told of his transformation, the whole Zendo began to cry. I think he left the United States a changed man, which he had not expected. We had all thought that the students would be changed. But in this atmosphere of truth, in a week of sitting together, we were all mutually transformed. So I'm getting ready to close, but let me just say that one of the things that I try to do is this the rebellious person in me, but I try to talk about the things that I felt were taboo, that weren't supposed to be talked about in Zen. So uh, identity, which we're not supposed to have, if you're no centralized self, you've let go of your identities. So I talked about the consequences of being a Jew for me. I have a chapter on racism, and I talk about the consequences, the pain of of slavery, of what it produced for my sisters and brothers who have black skin, black and brown skin. And I talked, I, I went to a lot of places. That was one thing Bernie Glassman taught me was that if you go to the place of the trauma, your unconscious will bring up all this stuff and then you can work with it. So in this book, I went to a lot of places in the race chapter. I went to Africa, Ghana, Africa, to the slave castles. I went to Mississippi and Alabama for the museum, the legacy museum there Uh, for the funeral of my uh, African-American mother, I would say. So I went to a lot of places that brought up 
my issues so that I could really work with them front and center. And also the sexuality chapter, although it's entitled Do Not Misuse Sexuality, which you might know is one of our precepts, I just simply don't think we talk about it enough. And the um, statistics are that a quarter of us in this room have had sexual misconduct perpetrated on ourselves. And I think that quarter is very, very low because nobody reports it, you know, especially if it's domestic. You don't go to the police against your dad or something like that. So it's a very prevalent thing. It really affects your psyche. And it takes a long time to heal. And that's, I guess, one of the things I wanted to show, demonstrate in that particular chapter, was I have been healing for a lifetime. It's been my whole life. It doesn't go away that fast. It really, when you act out sexually on another person, the victim is deeply affected by it. And I really wanted to say that, like the Me Too movement, I wrote this chapter before the Me Too movement, but the Me Too movement, thankfully, at least now you can talk about it and maybe get believed, and maybe the person goes to jail, maybe, maybe, maybe. But what hasn't been talked about is the consequences and how long it takes how long it took me to love my body, to feel like it was okay to be sexual, to allow my sensual and sexual urges to bloom. I mean, I just totally shut down. And uh, it was very interesting at another talk I gave, and I, I must have talked a little bit more about the sex chapter. Um, a woman raised her hand in the Q&A, And she said, thank you so much for talking about the partners of sexual trauma people. Because I had talked, and in my chapter, my dear sweet husband allowed me to say what we actually had to do to help me. And him. I mean, we all have a lot of sexual hangups. And there's sexual addictions and many, many things. But... um, she was so happy that I talked about the partner also is affected of the person who has been abused. And lastly, just staying with the sex topic, is would it be possible if we really worked on that precept a lot that we wouldn't have all the abuses that we're having in the teacher community? You know, Mm. teachers who are abusing their students. Um, Now, I've been in Zen since the 70s, and there have been a lot of incidences, including Katakiri Roshi. So, and Clouds and Water is another. I mean, I have been just dumped on with the consequences of usually male teachers, but not exclusively, um, mistaking the intimacy of spiritual life 
for sexual energy. Uh, so that has to be talked about a lot more, in my opinion, than it is. So this is why many, many of the chapters are about things that we don't usually talk about in the Zendo. And I'm, I'm kind of nervous. I noticed my agitation saying that. So I'll just do a little warning. If you're a trauma person and you want to read the book, please notice when you're getting triggered. So I've had two feedbacks. Some people can read the book straight through like, whoa, I'm interested in this. And they go straight through. And other people are stopped in their tracks. And you're usually stopped at the point where you're still trying to digest something in your own life. So please go at your own pace. That's what I would say to any trauma survivor, to trust your instincts, go at your own pace, don't allow the world to push you around, go slowly, kindly, gently. If you don't want to read the book, that's fine with me. Put it down. Come back to it in three months or a year, or don't come back to it. It wasn't my intention to re-traumatize people. It was my intention to bring this up in the Buddhist world. Okay. Oh, I'll just say, I just want to do one cute thing that I usually say. I am into 80%. That it's great. I rejoice in 80% healing. I'm not going to get 100%, I don't think. 80% healing. Yay. <laughs> and that's the same with enlightenment. 80% enlightened. Yay. <laughs> this is what Dogen calls continuous practice. And I just, I'm glad, I've been starting to write blogs about these talks I've been giving. And I remember, I don't know what the, which fascicle it's at the end of, you might know, is when he call, talks about a half a person. <clears throat> and I think it might be at the end of Bendo Ha. Ben, well, anyway. He says, he talks about it as half a people. We're a half a person. We're a half a person with all our issues, neurosis, human failings, dukkha, everything. And we're half a person Buddha. And how do those two lovingly and kindly integrate? And if they integrate, I believe, this is my understanding of the Four Noble Truths, if they integrate, you have a tremendous capacity to make choices about your behavior. And you can choose wholesome behavior so that you produce good karma for yourself for the future, but also for the world for the future. All right. I end with kintsugi. Kintsugi is a Japanese craft. Uh, where you take a piece of broken pottery. You, you might know this. I, I hear that it's kind of, what do they call it when the internet picks it up? Viral. It's going viral. Kintsugi. That you take the pieces, you glue them together, and in the cracks you put gold, silver, or porcelain. And they end up being totally beautiful. Some people, and I am one of them, think that the pot that's been put together 
afterwards is actually more beautiful than the original pot. And so I take this as a metaphor for healing, for my own healing, that I saw all the split off parts of myself. That happens especially in trauma where you just can't deal with it, so you split it off and you don't deal with it. And I'm not totally sure Zen, the way it's being taught now, actually helps you find your split-off parts. I think I went through Zen for many decades not dealing with my shadow, just kind of skipping over that part. And, of course, your children, if you have children, they'll show you your shadow right away. So I've learned my split-off parts from my kids. Um, taking those parts, taking the brokenness, putting it back together, and what I call, uh, I call it gold. The, I, the gold in the cracks, I think, is the divine abodes, is love, is gentleness, is kindness. That that is what we can put in the cracks of our psyches. And for me, I didn't really know about love or gentleness or kindness. I didn't come from a family that taught that. I had a lot of self-hatred from uh, being an oppressed, from an oppressed community. I didn't know very much about it. And I have really had to consciously develop it in myself. And you can do that in Buddhism. The divine abodes are a beautiful practice. I say if you're a trauma survivor, you should be doing loving kindness every single day for the rest of your life. That's my, in my opinion. And there's lots of ways of doing it, beautiful ways of incorporating loving kindness, gentleness, compassion, forgiveness in your zazen and in your life. Um, so... And then I just think about our world, pretty broken, fallen apart. And I don't know what to do except pray or envision it that we could do kintsugi. We could take off the parts and glue them back together and with respect and dignity and kindness try to heal the diversity that's happening in our country. Okay, so I'd love to hear uh, replies or what struck you or anything you want, would like to say out loud to me or to your community. Thank you so much. Very helpful teaching. Please feel free to respond to Judith online or here. Yes. Uh, so I was thinking, when you talk about intergenerational trauma, are you talking about biological trauma, like exploring your genes? Because I was thinking, I'm, I'm part of the LGBTQ community, and I can feel that I, I carry the experience from earlier generations with me, and I try to like honor them in the way I carry myself with an aspect of my life. So, yeah. Yeah. so I... 
And that's the other thing. What is the modern understanding of karma? So what I learned through this exploration is that what happened to my parents and my grandparents and what happened to the world before me matters in who I am. History matters, and we should take it seriously. So that's a way causes and conditions produce what's happening now. But, you know, the scientists are proving that it's genetic. Now, I read, and it's in the book, that the telomeres at the end of the chromosomes lengthen when you're under stress, post-traumatic stress. And that change in the DNA goes down generation after generation. And... The oppressed people, which I'm totally with you about your community, um, we all have common psychological traits, and these are the traits. Numbness, sadness, inhibition, anxiety, hypervigilance, a not unreasonable sense that the outside world is implacably hostile. And I think that applies to all oppressed people. And I believe that there is healing that can happen in this intertwining that I've been speaking about. I, I still believe in transformative evolution, even though the world is in such a terrible mess. But part of being a Buddhist and sitting for 50 years is my belief that there that we can evolve and be freer and more liberated. Is that okay? Yes. Thank you very much. Yes. Yeah, so when you were talking about Jewish anxiety and I laughed, it was a laugh of recognition and agreement. I, I do. Um, and I think um, I, I'm glad that that is a, a wider community. We've been talking about the trauma of slavery, but I, I do think that there are multiple communities with complex histories and that, that we do need to acknowledge that. And, and like you said, that interdependence of the oppressed and the oppressor. But so I was, but one thing as you were talking sort of struck me um, when I walked over here, I live about five blocks away and I walked, down Lawrence to get here this morning and there was a window that was broken on a, a storefront and on the business and the, the window was completely shattered and the pieces were on the ground and I, I was like oh I don't want to be late um, but I thought uh, I wonder if the people know that that happened and I I called um, the name on on the uh, one of the names of the owners and I talked to this person and he had no idea and and he said to me do you think it just fell apart by itself and I said no this doesn't happen by itself and I don't know I mean the idea of crystal knocked was not in my conscious mind um but maybe that did have something to do with why I thought it should stop well I think that was a compassionate gesture to stop and call the business And I think that's where the Eightfold Path leads us, is we have a clearer mind, we have an open heart, 
and we're responsive. Appro- what is it? We have an appropriate response to what we see in the present moment. And that was an appropriate, loving response to what we see in the present moment. And unfortunately, we don't have the power to change the whole world. <laughs> but little, if you do the appropriate response, at least, you know, in your little tiny section of life, you are trying to heal the world. Well, you acknowledge what you see. I mean, and that, yeah, right. and, and, and maybe I think it does help my hearing you, you know, thinking about what the associations of shattered glass are. And I think, again, I'll just talk a little bit about helping the world, which is the Bodhisattva vow. I feel like I can only do it in the parameters of my own life. Like, I'm not a senator. And even senators can't do it, can they? I mean, they have a vote, but all the politics, I mean, not one senator has the power to change the world. Um, So, but I can find what I can do in my own life. And one thing that I'm doing, well, it started by my going to the prisons, teaching Buddhism in the prison, but it evolved into working with a African-American community for 18 to 30-year-old men, helping them holistically to um, find their way in the world without going back to jail. And, um, And I teach meditation there, and I feel really good about it. I feel like this is something I can do. And maybe it'll help a few people, and maybe it won't, but this is something I can do. And I think that's kind of important that we find. I got that from Titnat Han, really, because his whole life, he, they did letter campaigns, the Plum Village, massive letter campaigns about uh, the Vietnam War. That's something I've always admired about you. Uh, Am I right that Tygen always includes social engagement in his teaching? For for a long, long time. Thank you for all the things we've ever included. I think we should take some extra time for other people to comment or respond. Next time, usually we close, but I think Kathy. Kathy. Oh, thank you so much for the talk. I very much appreciated that. And one thing that came to my mind is how you see an ideal sangha. Okay, so there's no ideal sangha, but moving toward what would be useful. In terms of how do we bring more focus to allowing our personal lives or the Things that we need to let go of, or the things we need to work through, and the traumas, how do we recognize that more? Well, one of the reasons I'm not a Zen teacher in a Sangha anymore is because I don't know the answer to that. So that's where I'll start, that I, I don't know what to do anymore. 
I will say that I just talked at the SCBA conference. I talked about women in Buddhism, and I talked about some of my understanding of where we need to go. So that is, that's on my website, and it's also on YouTube, if you want to listen to that. Um, in Gulp, so this is, uh, I'm nervous about saying this, but uh, you can agree or not. Okay, I'm just going to be myself here. I think the uh, Japanese cultural milieu needs to be changed. I, I, I don't think it helps us get to more and more people who could benefit from meditation and from Buddhism's principles and what we're doing. So, I don't know. Do we wear these Japanese clothes or not? I'm choosing not to at the moment, but I, I respect, I love, you know, what I've done in the past, but I don't know what to do about that. There's some, um, I'm into evaluating what I'm calling now the patriarchal hegemony of Zen. So there's a lot of ways that I think we could soften this up. We could teach more relationship-oriented things. We could bring the family more into it and not be stuck in the patterns of male monastic life. And I kind of don't know how to do that, but that's one of my ideas. The other I thought is psychology is pretty much dismissed, in my opinion, and I think that needs to be elevated because that's where Americans are coming from. I mean, Freud started in 1880 or whenever he did, and our... If you were born in the 19th century, which most of you have been, that is a basic structure of how we think, which is different than the Asian mind. The Eastern mind is, is, is quite different, although we're coming together, right? The whole earth. As I see, I think that's so beautiful that you have the whole earth behind your statue. So I think that that has to be looked into the dismissing of our stories, which is why I wrote the book, because I didn't want the stories to be dismissed. But I still think I'm working Buddhism on the stories. I'm working the Eightfold Path to the best of my ability. And I think the precepts... One thing that has happened, as I said, I gave an hour talk on this, and I'm not going to do it here, but I'll, the last thing I'll say is white... Um, what do they call it when you change religions? Uh, White convert Buddhism, which I kind of think we're in, um, started with hippies who were into mind states, and I was one of them. And what I was interested in was samadhi. (laughs) Of the three bases, Prajna, Samadhi, and Ethics, Sila. Oh, I thought wisdom was kind of interesting, too, but it was always towards mind states. And that is the karmic seed of white, what's the word? 
convert. convert Buddhism. So that has to be changed. It's not, samadhi is not elevated in Buddhist teaching. They're equal. Samadhi, wisdom, as uh, Thich Han said, knowing what is helpful and what isn't helpful, and ethics. And I think ethics really needs to be brought up because it's how we form relationships. And it's important for a, a half a human being. Nathan's hand is up. Hi, Dr. Rena. I am uh, oh, listening hold from on. I think that. Hold on, Nathan. I think we can hear you now. Hi, I'm listening from Michigan, and uh, I used to live in Chicago, and I started sitting with Ancient Dragon almost from the beginning back in 2003. And one thing I wanted to point out is that Ancient Dragon was um, founded by a lot of psychotherapists. <laughs> so I feel I feel like this is a sangha that's been um, very receptive to a lot of the things you've been saying for a long time about um, the importance of psychology, the importance of working with um, multiple modalities, as you put it. And, um, you know, I, I'm biased towards that point of view myself. So I don't know how much that is true in the, in American songs in general, but I, I expect there's a lot of songs like that where, that have a large involvement of, you know, um, mental health professionals who are drawn to this practice. And um, so, uh, yeah, I totally agree with you about all of that. And I feel like Ancient Dragon is such a warm place because it has that, um, it has that, um, that focus that was brought to it from the beginning by, by the people who, who founded the Sangha. Thank you. The next step is how does that change the structure? Does it or doesn't it? How? How do you change? Like, for example, Sishin for me. I've done hundreds of Sishin. I used to love doing Sishin. But now I think there's, that there's some effort in pushing that happens during Sishin that I don't think is necessarily good for people. And it comes from Japanese male psyche. So that just stops me in my track. How to do Sishin where it's not pushing, over, exhausting. I don't know. I don't know if you know what I mean or not. Nicholas also has his hand up. Hi, good morning. Uh, thank you so much for the wonderful talk. Um, I bought your book. It's one of the great things of being online and multitask. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this, uh, uh, well, there's so much I want to say. One, uh, let me just say it. I, I also have a lot of trauma. 
So sometimes my mind gets all over the place, but a lot of my healing has happened um, out of time, as you say. So uh, thank you for naming that. And that's something I've been exploring for the last few years is timelessness and time itself. And basically I've come up with it. Everything is happening all at once. (laughs) We just can't really see that. Um, But uh, I also, to hop on the multiple modalities uh, bandwagon is that, um, you know, for many years I lived a few doors down from the Zen Center in San Francisco. And Zen didn't work for me because I had too much going on, you know, emotionally and in my body. My trauma is more violence-based, family violence, emotional violence, and crime. But it just made it impossible for me to sit in in, in a Zen tradition at that point. And so I drifted out to Spirit Rock and worked with uh, Jack Cornfield, and he was very, he embraced early on multiple modalities, and particularly Neo-Reikian kind of body-based therapies and psychedelics and whatnot. Um, so that was super, super helpful for me. I also participated in 12 Steps for a decade, and that was incredible for me as well. And so I really hear you on on these points. Um, I feel like I inherited a lot of Greek anxiety, which I, you know, work to embrace and notice and recognize. Um, yeah, so thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your kind of iconoclastic point of view. And um, I think that, uh, oh, most importantly, I want to say, having said all that about multiple modalities, is that now I'm totally into Zen. I am so ready for Zen. <laughs> I, you know, Vipassana doesn't even interest me that much anymore. I really get so much out of the teachings. But, you know, I had to go through a lot and many decades to get there. So thank you so much. So I have a um, closing song. Could I do that? (laughs) If I can remember it. Um, So one of the chapters in the book is about my solo years of practice outside in nature on a dock in the suburbs (laughs) uh, on a little pond. And um, I made this song up because I didn't want to do monotone anymore. Uh, 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 uh. I thought melody was more feminine, you know, variety. So I made up this song for my sangha, which at that time was the plants and animals I was sitting with. Uh, Big turtles. Um muskrats, weasels, raccoons, birds, um, cottontails. Um, Whenever I say that, I think of uh, red-winged blackbirds are on Mm -hmm. cottontails. So I 
I sang this song to that community, and now Clouds and Water, it's in their, uh, it's in their world. And may I interject here, if I may? Maybe we can change our schedule and have this as our service. Okay. So maybe put yourself in an environment where there's a lot of nature around you. You can visualize that. A forest or Lake Michigan. Or the top of a mountain. Or the swamp. My husband would put himself in a swamp. May the merit of this penetrate into each and everything and all places so that we and the world together may realize the Buddha way. Amen. <laughs> Thank you so much, Judith. Thank you all for listening. Um, I want to uh, absorb so much of what you have said and to think about shifts and changes in realities. So, I, I, I hope that Ancient Dragon um, structure is not so Japanese hierarchical based and as a non-monastic, non-residential community, uh, we come together to sit and we talk and we maybe need to find more ways of talking more. <laughs> Well, I, I have a don't know mind about this, and I don't think any one person, I really believe, I think I believe in what Thich Han said, that the next Buddha will be Sangha, and that it's going to be a collective activity for us to change the form. It's very, very hard to change the form. Katagiri Roshi told me once, the form is Zen, and Zen is the form. So that's what I did at Clouds and Water. I did the form, but now I just can't do it anymore. So hopefully the collective will figure out in the 21st century how to make this accessible and deep both. I'll just add that I agree that the forms are important and also the forms need to be flexible and expanded and revisited. And that's up to all of us. Thank you very much.